Turn to John chapter 6 with me as we continue our series in John. So I was preparing this week, studying this passage. What a joy to be able to do that on your behalf. Um, I, I benefit so richly. But as I was studying through this passage, it just dawned on me that you have, in God's providence, in God's design, he has designed that fallible men speak his infallible words in an effort that he will address his people. So this morning, as this fallible man proclaims these infallible words, the idea behind that is that God wants to address you this morning, that he wants to speak to you. And so you have certainly, you do have a fallible man who is doing his best to rightly divide the word of truth, but more importantly, rather than this man, I want you to hear God's words this morning as he speaks. So let's pray to that end. Actually, let me read the passage first. John 6, verse 16. When evening came, if you remember, he had just fed the 5,000 there was much left over. The disciples had gathered it all up. They'd been on the mountain all day. Jesus had been teaching, feeds them at the end of the day. And now comes the evening. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Father, Lord, every one of us this morning wants to position ourselves to hear you speak to us. Would you address us through these words today? Lord, and may we hear you speak. May our hearts receive your word. May our souls be refreshed by your words. May our faith grow because of these words. Lord, help us to draw near to you this morning as we listen to our Lord speak. Lord, help me to speak to this church, this church that I love and respect, desire to serve. Help me to speak with confidence in you that you are here and you are addressing the church that you love and you died for. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John is recounting this story as an eyewitness who felt the wind and the waves, 
who was in that boat, who saw Jesus walking on the water, who watched Peter, as you read in Matthew, get out of the boat and do the same by walking on the water, who John is the one who as well sees the winds and the waves become calm, who experienced the boat miraculously appearing, coming to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and who heard Jesus speak to them in the midst of this boat and hear him say, it is I, do not be afraid. This is John's story. It's not just an account passed down from another person. It is John's accounting of his experience of being in the boat. The disciples have just witnessed in verse 16 and 17 When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The disciples have just witnessed another miracle with the feeding of the 5,000. The past few days for these men have been absolutely packed. They have been ministering in Jesus' name prior to the feeding of the 5,000. They saw many healed. They saw many delivered from demonic spirits. They've participated in the feeding of not just 5,000 men, but but men, women, and children, which was well over 10,000 people. And it was supernatural. They're a part of this, and they were feeling great about themselves. No doubt they're feeling really good about being a part of this miracle of feeding all these people because they're the ones who are passing out the food. They're the ones who were representing Jesus in the work of his ministry, and they've listened to Jesus as he's taught on the kingdom of God, and now this day draws near. And no doubt they're tired. No doubt that they have had a full few days. Things are... Like I said, been packed. And now it says that Jesus in Mark compels them to go into the boat and make their way across the lake to Capernaum. In John, it just says when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. In Mark 6, Mark tells us that Jesus compels them to go into the boat and go to the other side. But he does not go with them. Instead, He makes his way up the mountain further where he can escape the crowds and he can be alone and he can pray. In verse 18, we can see as the disciples are making their way, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. As the disciples make their way on the Sea of Galilee, it is now dark. The weather is turned, the waves turn against them. Now, the Sea of Galilee is approximately six to seven hundred feet below sea level and as as it is is uh, designed by god there are ravines deep ravines because it is below sea level deep ravines that actually go right into the lake and because of those deep ravines and gorges there are winds that come rushing down from the mountains cold winds that hit the warm water of the sea of galilee and At any moment, which is very common, there can be this huge storm, this huge disturbance. The waves can just go go crazy. The winds can go crazy. And so any fisherman, any seaman on that, that, that Sea of Galilee can expect 
something like this at any moment. And that's exactly what happens. And as a result of this strong wind blowing, verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They had rowed three or four miles. Now, in, in Mark's account, they, had, they, they were making little headway. Said Jesus sees them from a distance, and he says they, make, they were making little headway. And they were already rowing into the fourth watch of the night. And so the picture here is that these men, compelled by Jesus to go to the other side, to get in a boat, go across the Sea of Galilee, they are rowing into a heavy wind, big waves, a stormy weather. They've rowed for about seven hours into the fourth watch of the night. And all they've made is three to four miles. Olympic eight-man rowing, which CJ mentioned when he was talking about boys in the boat, which is an outstanding book. Olympic eight-man rowing, in the Olympic events, they row 2,000 meters to win the gold medal. That equals about a mile and a quarter. They do that typically in under six minutes. And these men rode about 6,000 meters in seven hours. That's how hard it was. And in verse 19, John highlights another sign for us. We saw the first sign of the water being turned into wine at Cana. The second sign was the nobleman's son being healed. The third sign that John accounts is for the lame man at the pool of Bethesda being lifted up. The fourth sign is just happening, the feeding of the 5,000. And now we have the fifth sign. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. John highlights the fifth sign as he does all signs in an effort to point us towards Jesus. He specifically records seven miraculous signs in chapters 2 through 12, which are known as the book of signs in John's gospel. And here it is, we, we learn, as John wants us, the reader, to learn and the readers back then to learn, he is pointing with the signs to who Jesus is. Is. And that was the whole purpose of the signs. Time and time again, as these signs were performed, people were drawn to Jesus because of the signs, but not because of Jesus, but because of what he had done. So they're drawn to him because they want more bread. They're drawn to him because they want healing. They're drawn to him because they want more water turned into wine. But they're not drawn to him as the Savior. And so time and again... John writes this and uses signs to point us and the other readers to Jesus. And signs are designed to grab our attention. And they often do that. When I was in England many years ago, I was in a part of England and there's uh, there's this really long hilly street and at the bottom of the street there was this one sign and it said do not attempt to stop runaway trucks I thought really who stands in the middle of the street attempting to stop a runaway truck I saw another sign that said beware of dog 
The cat is not trustworthy either. <laughs> and then a fitness sign. Tired of being fat and ugly? Just be ugly. <laughs> Each of these signs in John point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah. As John twenty thirty one tells us, these things have been written, these signs have been accounted, recounted to you, that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing, you might find life in his name. The water turned to wine in chapter 2 points to Jesus as the one who changes us by giving us new birth, as we saw in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. The life-giving water offered to the Samaritan woman is pointing to and illustrated by the physical life given to the nobleman's son. The healing of the layman illustrates both the mercy and forgiveness of God towards sinners and yet also the judgment to come if they do not repent. The feeding of the 5,000 illustrates Jesus's power and that as we will read in later in chapter 6, he is the bread of life. And now Jesus walking on the water points us to him as the sovereign Lord over every area of our lives, especially our salvation. You know, being a disciple of Christ is about incremental growth in knowing Christ and becoming more like Christ. And it's a growth that requires an increasing faith and obedience. It's a faith and obedience that also will be tested again and again and sometimes severely. Jesus himself regularly tests his disciples as he does now in this account. As he does, he regularly tests you and me. And these tests are given, they come that we might learn to find our hope, to find our life in him and him alone. This story is a story about faith and obedience as disciples of Jesus Christ. And an obedience that is going to be tested. Now no doubt these men who were experienced fishermen and, and seamen relied on their experience to get them across the lake. No doubt their confidence in themselves was riding high. They had they had cast out demons, they had healed, they had fed the 5,000, they had been with Jesus. They were, they were celebrities like him. The crowds were following. And so now Jesus sends them on their way, on their own, in the dark, on the sea. And their, their faith, their understanding of who Jesus is, their lives are sorely tested, severely tested in a number of ways. Here's my proposition. There are times as Jesus' disciples that we must strain against our own circumstances by trusting that he is Lord over them all. I'll read that again. There are times as Jesus' disciples that we must strain against our own circumstances by trusting that he is Lord over them all. And we do have to strain against the circumstances of our lives, which is for us 
about growing in our faith and our obedience. Three main points this morning. What can we learn from this story that are go- that's going to strengthen our trust in Christ? What can we learn from this story that will help us grow in our faith and our obedience in Christ? Especially when we are straining in the dark. We are straining when the storms are surrounding us. Who, who is this God that we are following? Well, three things. Number one, I think John wants us to see. John points us with this sign to these things about Jesus. That first, he is Lord over our daily lives. Jesus is Lord over our daily lives. Mark, Mark 6.45, Mark writes, and this is the parallel to John. Immediately, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. He's on the mountain. It's dark. There's a storm. It's the wind and the waves. Unless he had the most incredible eyesight like Superman ever known, it's uh, his omniscience that sees what is going on. And it reveals him as the sovereign Lord, the omniscient one who is over all and knows all. And that's who he is. Jesus is Lord over our daily lives. Immediately, he says, he he makes his disciples get into the boat to go to the other side. Here, Jesus exercises his lordship over their lives as he does ours. Verse 16 tells us in John, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Why did they go down? Well, Mark tells us Jesus made them go down to the sea. Jesus had a plan. Jesus knew in his sovereignty as the son of God, as God, man, Jesus knew what they were about to face. Jesus didn't just send them to the other side. He sent them. He compelled them into a situation they didn't know was going to happen, but he knew was going to happen. They were compelled by Jesus to go, knowing that they would face a trial. It was his sovereign wisdom to send them there that they would make their faith grow. And they obeyed. They obeyed Jesus and they learned and their faith did grow. How often have we obeyed the Lord in our lives? I did what the Lord told me to do, and it turned out badly. And you think, I'm not going to do that again. I tried it. I, I, I believed it was the Lord. I heard him speak to me. I had confirmation from others. It just seemed the right thing to do, and it totally turned out bad. And our faith and our obedience is tried. And then the next time we are faced with something similar, our faith and obedience are again being tested. Do we press through or do we back up? John writes in verse 17, 
says the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Jesus had not yet come to them. They did not know it. But Jesus not only saw their trouble from a distance, but he knew he was coming to them. They didn't. How often is it that you are in the midst of trouble and you just think he is nowhere to be found? Oh, I definitely see his frowning providence, but I do not see his smiling face. I definitely feel the trial and the suffering and the pain that I am walking to like these men in this boat, but I do not see Jesus. Yes, it is not only dark, it is not only deep into the night, I have not only been at this for seven long hours, but he is nowhere to be found. How often is that your experience in your own life? Whether it's waiting for God to meet a financial need that seems is never going to be met. For God to bring about a life partner, a spouse that just doesn't seem to ever come. Or the baby you have been praying for for many years. Or the healing that you have been begging God for and yet the pain persists How often are you feeling like you are in the fourth watch, straining, compelled by God that this is what you're supposed to do, and yet he is nowhere to be found. And John tells us, oh, he is somewhere to be found, and he is watching. Not only is he watching, but John says, you just Wait, he's coming. He's coming. These boys in the boat are not unlike us. Separated physically from Jesus, they are facing circumstances that are incredibly difficult, even to the point that their lives are certainly in danger Now, we are not being tossed by literal waves, but you know what? We are in a time and age where our church, the church, is being tossed by the waves of secularism, being tossed by the waves of compromise, being tossed by the waves of persecution and heresy and unjust laws and worldliness. And these waves at times literally do capsize some churches. May that not be us. As believers, we strain at the oars, at doing good works and ministering to people in the Lord's name. And sometimes we can feel as a church, we are making no apparent headway. So whether it's in our personal lives or in our church family life, we can feel like these men in the boat straining in the dark. And yet, John tells us, Jesus is Lord over our daily lives. Everything, every moment, nothing is outside of his view. Even as he is on the mountaintop, 
and it is dark, and it is stormy, and they are out in the sea. Jesus, the sovereign one, knows all. Maybe you're begging God for some ray of hope in your marriage, and all you do is get hit by another wave. Maybe you're pleading with God to give you some kind of sign that you would know that he is there, but he seems to be silent. Maybe you're straining at the oars, trying to battle a specific fear, but the darkness just gets darker. Maybe you're so weary just from rowing, you can't imagine just going another stroke, another day. What both John and Mark reveal to us in this passage is that in all these things that you're feeling and you're experiencing, they are real. But you are not forgotten. They are real. But Jesus has not abandoned you. He's not stepped away from you. He has not left you to make headway on your own. He is Lord over our daily lives. But secondly, verse 18 and 19 shows us something else. The sea became rough because, of a strong, because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. We also learn that he is Lord over nature. He is Lord over his creation. He's Lord over gravity. He can walk on water. He is Lord over his creation. He can make water so he can walk on it. He is Lord over the weather. It says that he gets into the boat and immediately the seas are calm. The winds die down and he is Lord over time. Then they took him into, boat, into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That is the only way I believe I would ever do a cruise. <laughs> you get in, and it's exactly where you're supposed to be. This story and these signs are recorded that we might believe that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who is all-powerful. If I were John writing this story, I might be tempted to think no one is going to believe what I have just written. No one. I, I'm, I'm writing about Jesus seeing us from miles away. I mean, they're at least three to four miles out in the water. It's dark and it's in the storm. I'm writing that he walked on water. I'm also writing that Peter got out of the boat, as it says in Matthew 14, and he walked on water. Oh, I'm really embellishing this story. And not only that, the moment Jesus got in the boat, we were at the dock. <laughs> no one is going to believe this story, but this is exactly what was supposed to happen because he is the sovereign one. Now, if you're not a Christian, you are meant to believe this account and find life in his name. That's what this sign points.
points to, that you would come to know Christ and you would believe in his name. And if you're already a Christian, this account is meant to strengthen your faith and your belief in his sovereign care for you and his sovereign power and his ability to oversee all things and intend over all things. That's the God that we serve. And if you're struggling with doubt about who he is, it may very well be because you have unbelief in your heart. You know, in Matthew 14, in this account, Peter, even after seeing all of this, he had seen the water turned into wine. He had seen the nobleman's son healed. He had seen the lame man walk. He had seen, just seen the feeding of the 5,000. He sees Jesus on the water. The first thing is he's frightened. And so he says, Lord, if it really is you, now who talks to ghosts if you think it's a ghost? But if it's really you, bid me to come onto the water. So Jesus says, okay, and Peter does. Peter does. He walks on the water. But then he begins to sink. I want to know this morning, do you feel like you're sinking? Are the winds and the waves around you causing you to doubt him as the sovereign Lord in your life? There's not one circumstance in your life that he is not Lord over. Even the one that you're thinking of right now, that you're struggling with right now, and wondering if he's ever going to show up. Is he still on the mountain? Is he still just watching? Or is he really coming? The third one is not only is he Lord over our daily lives, not only is he Lord over all nature, all creation, Jesus is the Lord who is our caring shepherd in all of our circumstances, both good and bad. Jesus is the Lord who is the caring shepherd. That's what John wants to show us. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going think about it it is dark it is storming I think we've established that and these disciples are already frightened enough if you remember back to the Mark 4 story the other story this is not the same one but the Mark 4 story where they're in the boat with Jesus and Jesus is sleeping and the winds and the waves and the storm comes and they're afraid the boat is going to go under they are fearful and these are experienced seamen the same thing is happening here these guys know what a sea of Galilee storm can do No doubt they've lost friends, maybe even family in the past to storms like this on the Sea of Galilee. So they are already afraid. And now suddenly there appears to be this guy, this ghost walking on the water. Weird things can happen at night. Weird things. Children are typically not afraid of monsters under their bed during the day. It's only at night. I, I do not like it when we are laying in bed at night and I hear Marilyn say to me, did you hear that? <laughs> and of course, my first response is no. <laughs> and then I told her, listen, whoever hears it first has to go. And, and 
No, I, I stand at the top of the stairs and I yell back to Marilyn, hey, give me the bazooka, okay? <laughs> Years ago in Atlanta, we had a house that had all wooden windows. And when it got humid, which it does in Atlanta, the windows will stick. And not even Arnold Schwarzenegger could open one of those windows. And I told Marilyn, one night she heard a noise, I told her, I said, look, if somebody is strong enough to open those windows, they can have what they want. I am not going downstairs and confronting them. Weird things can happen at night. Think about these disciples. They are seeing a ghost. John vividly remembers what he is writing about. He's probably thinking in his mind's eyes, there, there's this apparition. The waves are tossing. The wind is blowing. I, the boat is rocking. I am seasick and I am scared. And there's this apparition. And yet, this is where the Lord is our caring shepherd They were frightened, verse 19, but he said to them, oh, the word of the Lord when spoken to us, the life it brings. He spoke a word and the water turned into wine. He spoke a word and the lame man rose. He spoke a word and the nobleman's son was healed. He spoke the word of giving thanks and the bread and fish multiplied. And he speaks a word here and he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. I do not know. In my, my, my personal experience, I do not know of any more kind, caring, and loving words than these in all of Scripture. To have the creator of the universe, the sovereign one, the holy one, look at you and go, it is I. Do not be afraid the Lord over nature and wind and weather and seas and demons and death and sin speaks to these frightened men in the midst of darkness and storm and lovingly as a shepherd would calms their fears this is who Jesus is this is who your savior is in the midst of your dark world of waves and wind because like these men you are one of his disciples and he wants to care for you J.C. Riles says this he says the practical remark has often been made that many of the things which now frighten Christians and fill them with anxiety would cease to frighten them if they would endeavor to see the Lord Jesus in all, ordering every providence and overruling everything so that no hair falls to the ground without him. They are happy who can hear his voice through the thickest clouds and darkness and above the loudest winds and storms saying, It is I. Do not be afraid. And these men respond in faith. They do hear his voice. They do trust him. And in their trust, they draw him into the boat to be with them. They just didn't hide under the tarpaulins on the boat thinking, okay, maybe he'll just disappear. 
like little kids putting their heads under the covers, knowing that if the monster comes out of the closet, it's not going to see me. I'm under the covers. No, they take him into the boat. And in one more final supernatural event that is as much a kindness of the Lord than anything, he immediately brings them to the other side. They've been straining for seven hours. They've been in the dark. They've been cold. It's been raining. It's the wind and the waves. And Jesus not only shows up on the scene, comes into the boat, but gets them to their destination immediately. Because they were weary. And they were tired. And they were frightened. And he cares for them as he does for you. You don't know when the Lord's going to come. But he will come. And when he comes, what he does, what he can do in an instant, in your mind might take a lifetime. Jesus kindly and supernaturally defies time and nature and brings them to the other side of the lake. D.A. Carson said this, those amongst John's readers who knew their scriptures might well remember that the sea often stands for chaos and disorder, and it is God who controls it and stills it. And Riles, one more time, the old practical lesson still remains to be remembered. Christ's church is now a tossed ship in the midst of a stormy sea. The great master has gone up into heaven to intercede for his people, left alone for a while and to return. When Jesus returns again to his tossed and afflicted church, their troubles will be over. His voice, which filled the wicked with terror, will fill his people with joy. So what's our application? He is the Lord over our daily lives. He is the Lord over creation. And he is the Lord who cares for us as a shepherd. Well, I think... Fear and unbelief are two of every Christian's greatest enemies. And how do we fight these foes? Because that's what we see here. We see these men struggling with fear and unbelief. Fear, who is that walking on the water? Not recognizing the Savior in the midst of their stormy trial. In unbelief. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And John, in his epistle, writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The love of Christ for his church is what alleviates fear. The only real fear you and I should ever have is the fear of judgment. That's the only fear we should ever have. And that's been taken away by Christ. You don't fear judgment anymore. He has taken it away through his atoning death on the cross. He was your substitute. He paid your penalty. He died your death. He freed you from the slavery of sin. He rose again to prove that it was acceptable to God. And he now is in heaven interceding on your behalf as a good and loving shepherd, as a sovereign one who oversees your life. Fear can be overcome again and again simply. And you're going you're, you're gonna to be used to hearing this, but simply by reminding yourself of the gospel. 
the great news that God has come in the flesh in Christ. He has died for your sins. He has paid for your sins. He has forgiven your sins. He has removed judgment for you. But not only that, he promised you that he would never leave you nor forsake you. He promised you in Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Even when you are feeling alone on a dark sea, he is watching. He is Lord over that moment. He is the sovereign one over that moment. And he is the, sh- the caring shepherd who will come at the right time in his providence when he sees that it is best for you. Our struggle is that we look at a situation and we think, if I were God, I would not do it that way. You are not God. No one made you God. And you cannot make yourself God. And in your wisdom, if you try to do it that way, it would become a total mess. Only God's ways are the best ways. Oh, you can simply tell yourself, I have nothing to fear anymore. Judgment is gone. And unbelief, In Hebrews 13, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He did not leave his disciples in the boat to go it alone. He did not leave them to perish. He came to them exactly when they needed him. Yes, it was the fourth watch of the night. Yes, it seemed like it was forever before he came. How often do you feel that way? Have I felt that way? This has been going on for how, name the weeks, months, years. When is it going to end? There are some things in my life that have reached the two-decade mark of being unresolved. And I wonder at times, am I just in the first watch? Am I in the second watch? Where am I in this? Because I haven't seen God come yet. I do believe he's watching, but unbelief can creep in thinking, He's just not going to come. He did not lead these men to perish. He came exactly when they needed him. Attack unbelief by again reminding yourself of the gospel. What he has already done through his death on the cross. His resurrection. His work is not finished with you. And he's promised in Philippians 1 that what he began he will complete. Listen, if you give in to fear and unbelief, your life will be one that is trapped in a boat. But he has compelled you to go to the other side. And he has compelled you that in his promises and in his providence, he will be with you. He will show up and you will get to where you are going. You will get to the other side. You will get one day to that eternal place. You will get to heaven. He awaits you there. And the boat ride until then, not the best at times, but one that is overwatched by the Lord of creation. Let's pray. Father, for those here this morning who 
are languishing in the fourth watch, who are wearied and are wondering if they can hang on any longer. I pray that at this very moment, they would feel your presence and they would feel your grace. And may they experience your loving care. 